I'm your host, Frankie, and with me, as always, Jeremy David King. So strap in, smash that pedal, and ride with us down the paranormal highway. Let's debunk and find the truth behind every ghost story in the world of transportation. Welcome to Haunted Garage. Let's rev it. My very first night in Hollywood, I met James Dean. It was a very, very odd uh, occurrence. Um, I'd arrived off the plane. Those were, you know, it took a long time in those days, about 16 hours flight. And um, I'd been met by Grace Kelly and various people, but I found that I was alone for myself for the evening. And uh, a woman I knew phoned up and said, let me take you out to dinner. And we went to various places, and she was wearing trousers, and they wouldn't let her in any of the smart Hollywood restaurants. Thank you, you know, whatever it was, 1952, 54, something like that. However, we finally went to a little Italian dive, and that was full. And so one got turned away. I said, I honestly, I don't mind just a hamburger anyway. I was hungry by then. And then I heard feet running down the street, and it was James Dean. And he said, I was in that restaurant, you couldn't get a table. And my name's James Dean. He said, will you come and join me? So we said, yes, very kind of him. And then going back into the restaurant, he said, oh, before we go in, I must show you something. Um, I've just got a new car. And there in the courtyard of this uh, little restaurant was a, I don't know what the car was, some little silver, very smart thing, all done up in cellophane with a bunch of roses tied to its bonnet. Uh, and I said, how fast do you, can you drive in this? He said, oh, I can do 150 in it. And I said, have you driven it? He said, no, I've never been in it at all. And some strange thing came over me, some almost different voice. And I said, look, I won't join your table unless you want me to, but I must say something. Please do not get into that car, because if you do, and I looked at my watch, and I said, if you get into that car at all, it's now Thursday, whatever the day it was, uh, 10 o'clock at night, and by 10 o'clock at night, next Thursday, you'll be dead if you get into that car. I thought, nonsense. Someone had dinner, we had a charming dinner, and he was dead the following uh, Thursday afternoon in that car. Let me go, let me go. Oh, let me go, let me go, let me go, lover. Let me be, set me free from your spell. You made me weak, cut me deep. Welcome back to Haunted Garage. I'm your host, Frankie Campbellette, and with me as always, Jeremy David King. Woo! It's awesome to come off something that's so slow and dramatic, like Alec Guinness kind of speaking to us about the premonition that he had about James Dean's death. And I just think that that is, it's a great way to start this show because we are paranormalist, but we're also, man, we're gearheads and we're wrenchers and we're enthusiasts. So 
Alec Guinness kind of slowing everything down with yeah. his grace and charm. If you don't know who Alex Guinness is, famous for Great Expectations. He's an Academy Award-winning actor for the role on the uh, Bridge of the River Kwai. But, Jeremy, our audience will know him better as... Old Ben Kenobi. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. Oh, Obi-Wan. 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 Yeah, yeah. All right, I don't know why we went that route, <laughs> but whatever. Anyway, for our audience out there that don't know who uh, James Dean is... He makes sausage. <laughs> Jimmy Dean... <laughs> It's Sunday. <laughs> it's Sunday. Make some, <laughs> make some biscuits and gravy. Have a breakfast that you didn't even think you had time for. No, Ooh. of course we're not talking about that, Jimmy Dean. We're talking about James Dean. And of course you have. The man's a legend. If you ever see a photo of, of him, you ask yourself, wow, what jeans are those and how do I get them? Or maybe there's a Snapchat filter for that. <laughs> I mean, he's truly legendary. His face is legendary. He's in these legendary cult movies, legendary cars, yep. which ultimately has to do with why he lost his life. That's right. I'm cute, too. James Byron Dean is, it's a real tragedy, and we blame the little bastard. We do blame the little bastard. Or do we? Hmm. Let's begin with a little backstory, okay, shall we? On The Man, The Myth, The Legend. One Speed Dean. James Byron Dean was born February 8, 1931 in Marion, Indiana, to parents Winton Dean and Mildred Wilson Dean. Winton's success as a dental mechanic for the government moved the family from their home in Indiana to Los Angeles when James was six years old. During that time, his mother Mildred Dean would guide him into literature, prose, acting, and photography. It was evident that she wanted her son to truly be inspired by the world around him. You know something? No, what? You read too many comic books. <laughs> you know, dental mechanics sounds so gentle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the guy I want to go for my, get yeah. my teeth fixed. They use an air gun to get rid of your cat. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pull that tooth. Here's a chisel. <laughs> you want to hit it with the hammer or do you want me? Exactly. Hold my bit drill, will you? <laughs> so... Tragically, you know, James Dean loses his mother when he's nine years old. She, she passes of cancer. It's all over. The world ended. His relationship with his father kind of just withers away, and he moves back to Fairmont, Indiana to live with relatives. This is like the second separation from his parents, and it has a lasting effect on him and his rebellious nature, which the, the rebel without a cause that we know through the movies, it's not the reputation he had when he was younger. All the accounts from his hometown say he was nice, he was friendly, he was a loving guy, he was a big brother to people, he was a, a second son to, to others. He sounded like a pretty wholesome guy. I mean, this guy gained recognition for acting, but he loved to paint too. Above all, he wanted to do sculpture. I'll be damned if he wasn't a Renaissance man. And that's not all. The fun fact about Dean is every photo you'll find James Dean was self-directed by himself. His relationship with the photograph reflects his deep desire for self-expression. His pursuits in acting would be based on this. Photographer Phil Sturm is quoted as saying, Every photographer that took pictures of him were influenced by what he did. He would not allow any photograph taken of him. 
that didn't mirror what he wanted to see. He was a delight for a photographer because the photographer didn't have to do anything creative. James did all the creativity. Photographers essentially had to just push the proverbial button. Apparently, he was just effortlessly cool and creative, Jeremy. A lot like you. I've got that going on. You do. <laughs> Most of the photos were from Roy Shatt, one of Dean's close personal friends and photographers. And even for the 50s, the photography is inspiring and it holds up. Tell me about Dean's method acting. So he was a method actor, which is, he's one of the very first to do this. Why did you do that? It felt like it. We see this kind of acting now. It's more prevalent. We have Johnny Depp. We have Heath Ledger, Christian Bale, and one of my all-time favorites, Daniel Day-Lewis. If you don't understand what method acting is, basically they immerse themselves in it. That's all I ever do. So Dean was kind of this rebel in a different sense of the word, especially for the 1950s. 100%. His, his nuclear family exploded. And what was left was this expressive method actor who played these roles that challenged him and his audience. And that's a good point, because it's not only the audience either. It was actually the actors that he, you know, starred with, as you'll see in, in the, when you watch the film Giant. You know, he's there with Liz Taylor and you have Rock Hudson and these guys are famous silver screen stars. And you have right. this young buck, you know, 24 year old James Dean walks on set and he's doing things that nobody's seen before. I mean, he was truly somebody that was way before his time. And, and he would learn all this on Broadway. He would learn all this on the stage. That's actually where he's actually noticed. He's starring in a role on the stage called The Immoralist. And this is where he's discovered. This is also where he would blow off some steam after the stage performances and the immersive technology of being a method actor with his bikes, his motorbikes, and he would buzz all through downtown, and he picks up his nickname, uh, which would take hold, and that is... One Speed D. He had a, a couple of motorcycles. He had a Royal Enfield and an Indian 500. Go fast, die young, become a beautiful corpse. These are the phrases that, throughout our lifetime, come from... The one and only one speed Dean. Dean's influence over fuel burners and hot rodders is still very much a part of the daily swag. Mm -hmm. He pretty much invented the look of the engineer's boots, the tight T-shirt, the, the tight pants, the polyester jacket. It's just like he nailed down what being cool is, and it's lasted 60 years. Yeah, the, the epitome of cool was James Dean. But he's also a real race car driver, which is different from today, right? We have these actors that you almost can't have, even drive a car. They can't even drive a stick. And we've talked to a couple of them. I'm not going to get into yeah. it because it's a rabbit hole. But we've talked to some of these actors that didn't even know how to drive a stick or or drink. even drive a car. Yeah, exactly. Like you and can't. You're you're in the Fast and the Furious, and you don't know how to drive. You never had your car. <laughs> Granny shifting, not double clutching like you should. You're lucky that 100 shot of Nas didn't blow the exactly. But, but you look the part. Where <laughs> Dean was this person that didn't only look the part, he was the part. He was like Steve McQueen before Steve McQueen. Exactly. Exactly. And the heavy influence of deterrence of fast cars would be the thorn in the side of hot rodders for decades to come. In the horsepower and the muscle wars. So cars were no longer being engineered at this point to be slow. Thank they God. needed to get to point A to point B faster than any car brand. 
It was a race to see who could make the coolest, fastest car around. These automotive wars raged heavily all throughout the country till the muscle car wars ended roughly around 1972 due to the gasoline crisis, but also because the high rate of deaths. Dean was a graduate from Santa Monica College, which is now known as UCLA. He was active in acting from 50 to 55. He had 32 acting credits, according to IMDb. His defining roles, though, were East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant. He was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Actor. However, it was posthumously, which is a record. There's been people who have been nominated posthumously, but he got nominated for both Rebel Without a Cause and Giant after his death. And the other one that's posthumously is... Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger actually is nominated and wins the Academy Award. A little-known fact about Dino, which I find also cryptic and kind of creepy, was that in his personal writings, he wrote about the work he wanted to do, that his life and acting would be looked at for years and decades to come, that he would be untouchable and, in some sense, frozen in time as one of the best to ever grace the silver screen. Dean may have been granted his wish in some sense. On September 30th, 1955... In Shalame, California at 6 p.m., Dean was, in fact, frozen in time. Donald Turnipseed turned into oncoming traffic, causing a head-on collision with Dean's 550 Porsche Spider, the little bastard. The passenger in the car, which was his mechanic, Ruff Warwick, barely escaped with his life. Dean was not so lucky, and Dean was also not wearing a seatbelt. Coming up, the accident that set a paranormal wave through the country that exists today. And the little bastard, well, he goes missing. We pause now for station identification. This is the High Gear Network. Today's show is sponsored by Dixon Flannel. The only flannel you should ever buy. The only flannel that should exist in your closet. I'd like you all to do yourself a favor and throw away all your other flannels and immediately go buy some Dixon. Then go follow our social media accounts for your chance to win some Dixon apparel and some stickers from today's show. Because stickers are cool. Like today's show. Visit us at hauntedgarage.net. And remember, if it ain't Dixon, burn it. Dean loved to go fast on motorcycles and performance cars. He originally owned a Porsche 356 Super Speedster which is a beautiful car. It's like a VW Beetle, only cooler and faster. But he traded it in for a 1955-550 Spider convertible. It drives me nuts when they call these cars a Spider convertible because Spider means open-top sports car. It Whoa. didn't have a roof. Hey, 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 oh, hey, oh. You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again. Calm me down over there, Jeremy. Yeah, you're starting uh, throwing around the car names. You know you know what that means when you start throwing around car names. <laughs> that means car specs. Let's rip it. The 550 Spider is produced from 1953 to 1956 with a total production of only 90 cars. It could be equipped with a 1.1 liter four-cylinder or a 1.5 liter four-cylinder with either a four-speed manual or a five-speed manual. Dean's car, the little bastard, was a 1.5 liter four-speed. had 110 horsepower. It's mid-engine. The car had dry sump oiling. 
and it weighed about 1,455 pounds. The car had a limited slip rear, which means there are clutches in the rear differential, and as wheel speed is detected differently between the right and the left, the clutches apply pressure and tie the axle shafts together, but it's not 100% locked. Because this allows for differentiation of speed between the two wheels when cornering. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Let's reverse. Why is this so important? The three things I want to highlight, the dry sump oiling system, the weight of the car, and mid-engine cars. Now, most cars have wet sump oiling systems, even muscle cars. Let there are handling in there. But I think for our friends out there that might not have the knowledge that you have on the dry oil sump system and weight of the car. Can you please explain what exactly all that is? Well, we start with the dry sump oil system. This is where the oil is not kept in a sump underneath the engine like a typical car with an oil pan. Instead, it's basically kept in a can and the can is pressurized to pump the oil into the engine and is immediately sucked back out the bottom of the motor. This allows the motor to be set lower in the car and create a lower center of gravity. But it also allows the oil not to hit the crankshaft, which can rob horsepower. Wow. So, a Corvette, a Ferrari, even the Mercedes Goldwyn 300SL would have all had the dry oil sump system. It would, but at times would work so efficiently that these engines would never come up to temperature in passenger cars. Basically, we sold race cars to common folks. The peasants feel you have no regard for them. What? I have no regard for the peasants. They are my people. I am their sovereign. I love them. And they never reached the speeds going to the grocery store that they would raise the temperature for peak performance. Why do you want your engine to come up to temp there? car me You would want the engine to come up to temperature because it's more efficient. It's designed to run at a specific tolerance working with the lubricity of the fluids, specifically the oil. Metal expands, so oil, although most people think is lubricating, is also a cooling agent. So for our audience, this is why it is important to get your oil changed on time. Or a little before time. Because what happens when your temp is too high there, Karami? The metal expands. You can crack the block, throw a rod, blow the engine. You can seize it. The Porsche 550 is light by today's standards. So, to put it in perspective, what does this mean for speed? Every 100 pounds you lose is a tenth of a second and a quarter mile. It's equivalent to 10 horsepower. So, for racing, it's key to have light. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, that's what you want. So this was perfect for Dean's car because he was going to go race it. That's the whole point of this journey. Right. And one thing to say about that car is because it was light and it had a small engine, 110 horsepower doesn't sound like a lot, but the car is only 1,455 pounds. Probably with him and a full tank of gas, it's probably 1,600 pounds. Whew. So that's fast. It's, it's, it's going to be a fast car. It'll take your hair off. Right off. It just blows right off. That's what happened to my hair. Lastly, the little bastard was a mid-engine build. Most cars are front-engine build. How is this more efficient for performance-based cars? Basically, it keeps the weight in the center of the car, creating better balance when traveling at high speeds. But it adds to the complexity of working on the car. And a mid-engine car means that the engine sits in front of the rear axle. 
but behind the front axle. So the newest of all Corvettes, and I'm sure you guys have seen them, there's these shark-looking beautiful beasts named by the old bow-tie card sale. Yeah, roll it away. Stand an arrow straight, like a rock. Charging from the gate, like a rock. The C8 is the first Corvette to be a mid-engine. It is also the most inexpensive performance car, starting roughly around $59,000. It is the second car that GM has built that was mid-engine, the first being the 1984 to 1988 Fiero. And speaking of price points, Dean paid $7,000 for his 550 Porsche Spider, and with inflation in today's currency, that is roughly right around $67,500. But there were only 90 550 Porsche Spiders made from 1953 to 1956 making your total cost a low, low down payment of $1 million a month for five months. And if your name ends in O, you get zero down. That's right. If you did the math right, $5 million for one of these cars, because there was only 90 made between 53 and 56. And we only know that 89 exists right now. That's correct, as you'll see. The little bastard's top speed was 140 miles per hour, but on the fateful day, no one can account that it was driving that fast. Two hours before he was frozen in time, he was pulled over and earned a speeding ticket. He then stopped at a gas station, bought a bag of apples, and a Coca-Cola. The car that caused the accident was driven by Donald Turnipseed. His car, a 41 Ford Tudor, was popularized by a bunch of Colt 70s and 80s films, including John Travolta's White Lightning in Greece. Well, I could be Grease Lightning. Grease Lightning. Get some Daniel LaRusso's Yellow Ford and the Karate Kid that Mr. Miyagi bequeathed to him. And once again, Back to the Future, Biff's 46 Ford Super Deluxe Convertible that crashes into the manure. <laughs> Jeremy, should we? Um... Yeah. It's time for car specs. Let's wrap it. Donald's 41 Ford weighed in at 2,950 pounds, literally twice as much as a little bastard. A top speed of 60 miles per hour and could have been a flathead inline six or a flathead V8. So flathead motors are also known as L heads. They contain the valves actually in the block, not the cylinder head. There's no push rods. And the motors are running hot because the exhaust goes right through the middle of the block. Interesting. The Ford Tudor, a lot like the Model T, came in trucks, sedans, wagons, and convertibles. In 1949, Ford's truck line split from the car division, and the F-100 was born. One of the most coveted trucks of all time. F-100s are known for their incredible build and are easy to convert into a hot rod. There's a lot of F-words around here. There's um, a lot of four-letter F-words. I know. We've, we've mentioned Ford again, didn't we? As Donald was making a left to head home, he cut out in front of Dean's car and caused the accident that sent Dean to an early grave. The accident is highly controversial. For some, this accident is plain and simple. The car cuts out in front of a car traveling at speeds that are faster than normal. It is possible that based on the ride height and the bulkiness of Donald's Ford Tudor that he didn't see Dean at all. Jeremy can clarify this. Dean's Porsche was silver. It sat very low to the ground. And it could have been easily unseen 
in the reflectiveness of the desert, possibly mistaken as a mirage. It's possible that Donald never even saw Dean's car coming. The accident scene is gruesome. The car is barely recognizable. Dean, not wearing a seatbelt, died instantly from a broken neck. Both arms were broken, and he fractured both upper and lower jaws. Werther-Reich, Dean's passenger, was severely injured, but he survived. Donald Turnipseed had minor injuries. After the bodies were hauled off to the hospital in corner, Donald began walking home. He was offered a ride and took it. Countless news reports and book authors could never get Donald Turnipseed to speak about the accident. In all his years, he never said a word about it. He died on July 13, 1995. He was 63 years old. He was a loving father, friend, and co-worker. No one ever spoke ill of Donald, and that says a lot. I know he must have carried a lot of grief for the accident that shouldn't have been. You see, Dean was going to trailer that car to the races. When the mechanic and the passenger, Witherwright, suggested he get a feel for the car and drive it there. And this is where the lore begins and paranormal things begin to occur. First, after the insurance was settled on Low Bastard, Dr. William S. Reich bought the Porsche 550 Spider from a salvage yard in Burbank, California. He used the engine to power his Lotus 9 race car, which is a front-engine car, which is unusual because the engine came from a mid-engine car. Dr. Esreich loans the transmission and suspension parts to Dr. Troy McHenry, who is also a fellow racer. Both doctors would race in the same event, the second annual Pomona Sports Car Races, with James Dean's Little Bastard's parts. You're tearing me apart! Both of them were involved in accidents. Dr. Troy Lee McHenry hits a tree, and in an eerily similar way to James Dean, his mangled body is reminiscent of how Dean was found. Dr. Esreich spun out into the gravel, damaging the car significantly. But he walked away. The car was so damaged that Dr. Esrag couldn't race anymore. After he moved his practice, the Lotus sat and sat and became poorly outdated. He never fixed the car. He sells the 550 Porsche Spider to George Barris, but he keeps the motor. The engine exists and resides with Dr. Esrag's family to this day. The 4Cam Porsche's engine serial number is... 90059. Maybe coincidence, maybe something more. But on the day of that faithful race where the two doctors entered it, both would spin out, both would have accidents, and one would not survive the day. Funny thing to remember, Eschreich was leading the race and was pushed to be challenged. When this happened, he gets bumped and he spins out. That normally happens in race cars. The part that we want to focus on, however, is the person that tuned the engine was no other than the same person that was in that car crash with Dean. That's correct. Dean's mechanic was the one that tuned the doctor's car. So the famous George Barris buys the little bastard. If you're not familiar with George Barris, George Barris was made famous for building Hollywood cars, including the Beverly Hillbillies Jalopy. The Beverly Hillbillies. The Monster Coach. And the infamous Batmobile that Adam West drove. George Barris buys the little bastard with the promise to restore it, 
to bring it back to its original cool rebel splendor. But this never happens. Even Barris, with all the money, resources, and reputation, could not piece back this car together. The car was mostly aluminum and crumpled beyond repair. Instead, George Barris decides to parade the vehicle, acting as a deterrent for the L.A. chapter of the National Safety Council. It is during this time that the car literally begins to injure and take out innocent bystanders. In March of 1959, while the car is in storage, there is a fire that burned down the garage. Yet it only singed the paint and melted two tires. Barris sells the other two tires. While driving on the new tires, both tires blow at the same time, causing the car to run off the road and crash. Then, while on display, the little bastard shifts on the trailer, landing on a bystander, breaking their hip, and it gets worse. While the little bastard is on a transport, it falls off and lands on George Barkas, the transport driver, killing him instantly. But of all the deaths and the injuries, the car mysteriously vanishes in 1960, when it was sealed in a boxcar being transported from LA to Miami, and it stays missing. George Barris will offer a million dollar reward for proof that the car still exists in 2005 to celebrate the 50th anniversary. But no one ever responds to this ad. To this day, the little bastard that claimed the life of a Hollywood star and countless others is still missing. A historic auto attraction in Roscoe, Illinois, claims to have a few inches of the aluminum pried off the car from the destroyed windscreen. But is that all, or do they know more? The little bastard's transaxle assembly is currently owned by Porsche collector and restorer Jack Stiles in Massachusetts. Does he know where the car is? Both have never reported any strange disturbances within the confines of the parts that remain. But that doesn't mean that the car is done claiming lives. The paranormal is just that, an unexplained mix of sightings, journeys, and mishaps, all leading to a mystery that might never be solved. Is it the restless ghost of James Dean after being frozen in time at such a young age? Was it cursed long before him? Either way, I think it would be silly to ignore the fact that the bad luck associated with a little bastard doesn't ride a paranormal highway. And one last thing. Alec Guinness's premonition was dead on, and even if you can negate the paranormal happenings of the little bastard, Guinness's statement is chilling. On the next episode of The Haunted Garage, we venture to the land of the hammer and sickle, Russia's Black Volga. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The Haunted Garage, and on Apple Podcasts. Please review our show. It helps us greatly. If you rate us below a four stars, we know you don't wear dicks and flannel. From all of us here at Haunted Garage, we wish you high gears and high revs. I'm Frankie Campoletta. And I'm Jeremy David Campoletta.